Hi everyone and welcome back to The Advice Show. I'm Zach, a reporter at New Model Advisor. I'm joined today by Senior Investments Reporter Nicola Blackburn and today we're talking about neurodiversity and how we can accommodate different ways of thinking for advisors and clients. First though, a quick apology. Episode 2 of our three-part series, The Inside Story of ESG, will be coming out next week instead of this week due to some technical difficulties. Nicola and I are joined today by Katia Oakley-Bell, a Central Investment Proposition Lead at Quilter, and Louise Allison, consultant at compliance firm Conexo, as well as Holly Short, Principal Associate at Evershed Sutherland. Thank you all so much for coming on to the podcast. Katia, I'd like to start by asking you to define neurodiversity. Uh, what types of thinking are included in this term? And if you could share you know, your own personal experience of what this means to you. Yeah, of course. Um, thanks for having me. Um, I think neurodiversity is a really interesting topic. It's very broadly uh, uh, defined as having a brain that works differently from an average or neurotypical person. But when we actually kind of break that down, that that could mean one of any number of different things. Um, So in my experience, um, I'm autistic. um, So that presents to me certain challenges, but it also means that there's certain areas which I'm stronger at than perhaps other people might expect. Um, but for other people who are new, uh, neurodiverse, that could present very differently. Um, I've got friends who have borderline personality disorder, um, which presents in a very, very different way and it presents its own set of challenges. So when we're kind of thinking about uh, neurodiversity, it's really important to remember that everybody thinks differently, but we can kind of categorise people into certain areas and try and make accommodations based on those but it's really important to actually understand the individual and their challenges rather than just applying a sort of broad sweep diagnosis brush absolutely absolutely and and how is that process of discovery for you like I said everyone's different so I was just wondering how your process of discovery was yes so it's been an interesting journey for me I actually had quite a different experience to a lot of women with autism because I was diagnosed quite early um, I was about nine when I was diagnosed, whereas a lot of women are actually not diagnosed until they're older. And that's because a lot of the autism research and symptoms revolves around male presentations, which are quite different to how women with autism present. Um, the reason I was diagnosed so early is because I was lucky enough for my mother to be a teacher who had just gone through some training on how to um, recognise autism in um, her students and she noticed the signs in me and was able to get me the diagnosis and kind of um, assessment that I needed. Um, so for me the journey started quite early and I had initial um, sessions with a child psychologist to try and understand what was going on and how it presented for me but one of the challenges I really faced was that all of the literature, all of the material was about male presentation of autism so there was nothing for me to read that I could relate to personally. It was all what I felt I should be, but not the challenges I was actually facing, um, which has meant that kind of my journey through the years since then has been quite challenging as I've worked out what actual symptoms I have and how to manage those because there's not a huge amount of support. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, I'd like to bring in sort of Holly and Louise um, for a second. Um, I'd like to ask you guys, you know, as we, as Katia sort of just mentioned, every, neurodiversity is incredibly, um, incredibly varied. So I just wanted to ask you as a broad sort of brush, how we could accommodate people with different needs. Um, I'll go first. Um, so I think 
um, from a legal perspective, what you're really looking at is whether or not somebody um, who is neurodiverse could also be disabled. Um, there's a, a, a legal definition of what having a disability means, um, which is that someone has to have a physical or mental impairment that has a substantial and long-term effect on their ability to carry out normal day-to-day -day activities. And each of those elements gets broken down to kind of understand exactly what a substantial long-term effect might be, for example. Um, and if you fall within the category of being a disabled person, if, you're, um, if your particular illness is sufficiently serious and long-term, um, then you're going to be protected um, under the, the terms of the Equality Act in, in relation to various matters. So there are various forms of discrimination and um, that generally would be unlawful. So from a, a legal perspective, really, it's about looking at whether or not someone's neurodiversity is serious um, and has such a, an impact on them that they would qualify as a disabled person under the Equality Act. That's really interesting. Thank you, Holly. Um, just on that, I mean, would you say there have been a couple of uh, quite common examples that you've seen in your work uh, in terms of the nature of how people experience discrimination? Um, I think certainly for neurodiverse individuals within sort of an employment perspective, you see um, individuals who might suffer from ADHD or autism, for example, who feel that they've been excluded from certain things or feel that their performance isn't being appropriately managed, taking into consideration their particular um, disability and the way that it presents itself for that individual. I think as service providers, it really comes about in terms of what adjustments you should be thinking about making for individuals who suffer from a disability um, and what disadvantage that presents to them as an individual in terms of how they might be able to access your services or in terms of how they might be able to use your services on a, a long-term basis. And in terms of those service providers, how well do we all think that um, they're doing in terms of addressing these different needs, you know, prior to, as I'm sure we'll get into, consumer duty? Well, I'll pick up on the consumer duty point now, Zach, because I think um, a lot of what consumer duty is, is trying to do is bring together a lot of themes that the regulator has been uh, very mindful of and been trying to get the industry to engage with and do better around. And for me, neurodiversity as it impacts consumers is all about thinking of how do you best support neurodiverse consumers engaging and understanding the financial advice process, uh, whether that's buying products, being advised on products and decision making. And that's really just an extension of neurotypical uh, decision-making. It's just that because of the way neurodiverse minds work, um, they may suffer uh, either greater difficulty in engaging with the detail. Um, you know, you might find it difficult to read lots of dense uh, text. You might prefer infographics, pictures, etc. And you may also just have some decision-making behavioral traits that could potentially lead to you not making the best considered decisions. Um, and so I think it's about what are the behaviours, how do they interact with the 
financial decisioning processes that have to take place for everybody? Um, and how are they different and how are they better supported? So what do firms do to really drive good outcomes, drive that engagement and drive understanding? I was just going to add briefly, I think uh, kind of building off what Louise said there, it's it's really interesting for firms to consider how they can um, accommodate neurodiverse people broadly, um, but also to put processes in place to make individual adjustments. So an example of a kind of broad brush approach might be having every document available in Braille, for example, for somebody who is blind, which is obviously not kind of a neurodiverse trait, but is accommodation for a vulnerable customer. Um, whereas when we, especially when we're dealing with neurodiversity, I think it's really important that firms put in place processes to recognise what any individual client needs. Um, I think that's really important. That sounds great. Yeah. And I was also going to ask you whether you've seen any good examples of best practice around this ahead of, you know, preparing for good client outcomes um, and, you know, looking after, looking after vulnerable clients. Yeah, so I think one of the things that Quilt is doing at the moment is we we launched our Tell Us Once um, kind of campaign recently, um, which is set up so that clients only have to record their vulnerability with us once, and then that will be shared across all areas of the business so that they never have to tell us again. So that might be um, kind of more temporary vulnerability, uh, for example, a divorce or a bereavement, but specifically in neurodiverse cases, that could be that they struggle with phone calls, so would prefer to be contacted by email. Um, it might be that they, as uh, any sort of specific adjustment, they only need to remember to inform us once, and then they don't have to have that difficult conversation again, which I think is really valuable. Um, and the other thing that's been kind of introduced is the additional needs hub, which is a customer-facing online support. Um, and it's got practical tips and guidance for various um, neurodiverse people, specifically kind of broken down into certain conditions to make preparing, for example, for a phone call with us more easy. So there's, for example, some tips about um, uh, for autistic people, which uh, break down kind of the fact that they it's important. It's important that um, they feel that they have got what they needed out of the call um, setting up what documents they might want to have to hand to uh, feel prepared for the call so that these don't, things don't come as a surprise and, and uh, the sorts of things I I, well, I hope many firms are doing Zach is when we think about all the detail and complexity that sits behind a financial product so those horrible terms and conditions that we all have to tick or know that we've read and go yes that's fine Actually, we know nobody's reading them and understanding them. So layering that kind of information and pulling out key parts of the information will help all consumers, but particularly um, uh, neurodiverse people who perhaps don't want to engage with reams and reams of detail, whose attention perhaps wanders. Uh, the important or the most important piece of information can be identified. Firms will know that from really understanding what are poor outcomes specifically related to particular products. Complaints can help inform that and, and making sure, therefore, that, you know, whilst there might be four pages of, of dense text relating to everything, there may well be half a dozen or a dozen absolutely key points that you can lift out of that 
write in a non-technical jargon avoidance, um, put simply layer uh, that tells the customer the key messages. And that can really head off some poor outcomes absolutely at the pass. And that works for all clients, not just neurodiverse. I see a lot of the, 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 the good practice and the solutions helping all consumers, but particularly guarding against the most likely um, uh, people, you know, in the, in the center of the target of, of poor outcomes because they, uh, you know, need to engage in a certain way or have information presented in a certain way. Um it's really interesting hearing all these kind of examples of how firms are, are, are you know, facilitating this. Um, I wondered, are you all seeing, so I guess I guess more for Holly and Louise, are you seeing firms sort of, uh, you know, by default having these, these processes and these, um, these tools implemented or um, is it more a case where most firms, you know, they're, they're introducing um, tools and they're looking into it as and when uh, they you know as and when they they need to um, yeah can you give us kind of a picture of what um, what the industry looks like in, in terms of kind of you know waking up to this I think in terms of making reasonable adjustments on behalf of um, disabled customers um, I think firms are you know they're, they're aware of the fact that there is a duty to make reasonable adjustments um, I think it's quite a new thing for firms to be considering making reasonable adjustments on behalf of neurodiverse customers. Um, I think, you know, they're, they're more adept at thinking about um, customers who might have a physical disability that might prevent access to a particular premises or um, a visually impaired customer um, or someone with loss of hearing, for example, kind of how they might deal with those customers. But I would say that as a um, protected group, individuals in the neurodiverse community, are, are, I think firms are probably catching up um, to the fact that they may well be protected under the Equality Act and, and they may and that firms are therefore under an obligation to consider what reasonable adjustments might be required. And uh, again, I would hope a lot of firms have started and are a good way down the journey of really thinking about diverse customer needs because that's what they should have been doing under consumer duty. So really thinking about their target markets. Do they have any particular exposure to a, a greater than normal um, volume of, of customers with vulnerabilities, which would include things like um, uh, neurodiversity? And then taking that right the way through the life cycle of the product. So what might that mean in terms of the information needs at outset? What might that mean in terms of the support that they could need? And particularly at the back end, uh, where the, the, the consumer duty puts a... Um, a burden on firms to test customer understanding. So even though you may have done good research, you, you, you may have really thought hopefully long and hard and come up with some innovative solutions and new ways of doing things, um, you need to test that with a range of customers. And that range of customers needs to be reflective of your target market, which will include neurodiverse people. So just because you think you're doing a good job and you've, you've uh, you know, really tried hard to achieve that, making sure it's tested with customers and constantly adapting, changing and improving, I think is going to be key. So I hope people are a long way down, but I would hope that they're not ticking the box and saying job done. This is a continuous improvement, long term journey. 
And of course, um, whilst an increasing amount of this regulation might be entirely necessary. I'm sure some firms listening to this will think, well, my, the size of my firm is quite small um, and they're worried about the increased burden uh, that this might place on them. Um, how well do we think um, you know, smaller advice firms are equipped um, to provide um, extra support and extra resources dedicated to this? I'll jump in. I, I um, it, it, it must be. I mean, consumer duty is, is a you know, an enormous piece of, of uh, legislation representing a very significant uplift in the FCA's expectations for firms. So for fo- smaller firms, that's already a burden. And when you really think deeply about the sorts of things you should and could be doing, um, that is a big burden on, on smaller firms. Um, whether there are, uh, you know, ways to, to quickly get up the ladder by being uh, observant of what perhaps larger firms are doing, looking for areas mm. of good practice, coming to, I know we do, you know, a lot of lot of seminars and webinars, etc., a lot of which are free, um, you know, taking advantage of what is available rather than having to turn it into an, an enormous and expensive um, industry for them that, that takes away from, from, you know, the real work of looking after their, their clients at the end of the day. So I think there are ways, but you have got to, you've got to put a bit of intellectual rigour into it. And I think it's uh, building on the idea of whilst it can seem like a burden, I think it can be a really beneficial step for firms to take. Um, Not just thinking about neurodiversity, but thinking about their kind of consumer duty as a whole here. Um, If we we in one lens, we can view it as a burden, but we can also see it as a real opportunity for firms to demonstrate the value of their advice to their clients, um, to demonstrate what they're doing, to demonstrate these the value of financial advice over and above the kind of the past performance returns which are what we see kind of in black and white on a paper because we know there's so much more that financial advisors do and add, add ways that they add value to their clients it's really important that to take this as an opportunity to demonstrate that value I think that's a really good point, Katia. Um, and I'd like to ask um, if we could sort of state the case commercially for firms as well to put in the support required uh, to give, um, you know, additional support to uh, consumers. Um, because I think a lot of firms would not necessarily see the commercial benefit rather than just the moral benefit. I was um, just going to come in with a couple of other points on that. Um, I think the first is that, you know, reputationally, you you don't want to be a firm who has failed in your duty to make reasonable adjustments for a disabled customer. Um, so you've obviously got a benefit there. Um, but also, I think as well, there's a, a point to think about for firms generally in terms of their own recruitment, their own retention of talent, um, having um, or showing yourself to be a firm who understands neurodiverse customers um, and who understands how to support neurodiverse employees I think you um, open yourself up to the ability to attract talent and retain talent that in a way that perhaps some other firms don't um, if they they don't show themselves to be as forward thinking in this particular area. And I think building on that and something that Louise said earlier it's really interesting to think about when we're building these processes um, utilising the diverse talent that hopefully these firms already have but that definitely exists in the industry um, there's a lot of neurodiverse people out there in the industry who 
yes, they don't want the entire mental load for kind of devising all of these things, but are perfectly willing to share their experiences and recognising the value of their diversity and the perspectives that they can bring can really help when we're actually developing these processes and making sure that it's not just neurotypical people who are creating a process that's designed to support neurodiverse people. Um, the neurodiverse voices need to be heard in building that process. And when we talk about kind of retaining um, and attracting uh, neurodiverse employees, offering opportunities where their voices can be heard in building the processes can be really valuable too. Definitely, that's a really good point. And I think it speaks to the importance of diversity generally, um, making sure that there is diverse representation across senior level as well. Um, do you see this situation improving at all? I think it is, um, but I think it's slow. Um, more and more people are feeling comfortable talking about their neurodiversity. And I think that is um, slowly developing that uh therefore it's becoming more of a kind of thought about topic and people are seeing the value in it rather than it just being something people suffer with but actually it's there's, there's a lot of value from that neurodiverse people can add and there's a lot of strength there um so i think it is changing i think it's changing positively um i think there's a, a lot of neurodiverse people who don't feel comfortable yet talking about it and being honest about it because there's so many stereotypes it's something that i've really faced um, being autistic and female, a lot of people have a stereotype about what somebody who is autistic is like. Um, they kind of assume that I'm antisocial, I can't make eye contact, I don't like people. Um, and really, in my case, that couldn't be further from the truth. So I think something that's really developing is understanding that whilst people have these conditions or different ways of thinking, however we want to talk about it, um, they're not all the same just because of a diagnosis and there's there's strength there um so i think the more people that speak up about it and are open the the better it's going to get it's um it's really interesting katia because um not too long ago we were talking to noreen middleshaw who does a lot of work around ethnic diversity in the industry and she said that she thought that a core reason why there still seemed to be a problem about retention of, of employees from these backgrounds, but um, in slightly sort of higher up roles at firms was because firms were speaking quite a lot about, um, you know, their how inclusive they were, but a lot of what they were doing was not based on consulting um, the people implicated at their firms um, and, and, you know, kind of understanding from their firsthand perspective what they might need. Um, and it just, it kind of... Um, what you were saying kind of reminded me of that. I mean, have, have any of you seen, um, you know, I, so I guess the question is how can firms um, in, a, in a sort of considerate and, and the right way um, talk to neurodiverse clients and employees um, about their needs? So I think um, certainly something that, that we have seen is the potential for um, introducing policies that outline sort of support that you can provide to employees, but also establishing a forum. So you, you do quite often see forums um, for groups of employees who have certain protected characteristics. So forums for employees who suffer from a disability or who are from um, uh, an ethnic minority. You see that 
a lot less um, in terms of uh, employees who are neurodivergent. So I think the practical steps that employers can take to support neurodivergent employees are, are things such as showing them what support is on offer and providing a forum in which they can connect with each other and also where they feel that they have an opportunity to elevate what they what they want to say and what their experience of working at a particular firm might be. I think that's a really important point, um, kind of building on the idea of showing them what support is available. I think it's really, really key for firms to demonstrate that they're not going to make um, prejudiced or stereotyped assumptions about people and that there is um, that that they're willing to listen. Um, it's one of the things that, as I've kind of come out in terms of talking about being autistic, I was one of my kind of the things that I was really nervous about was that I was going to be um, denied opportunities because of it, because people would assume that it was not something I'd be interested in being involved with. And one of the reasons that I feel comfortable talking about it now is because I've seen my company, especially be open and they've they've proven that they will listen and they're inclusive and even if it's not as clear in terms of kind of a neurodiversity lens they've shown it in other ways so therefore I feel comfortable being open about this in a way that I wouldn't have done if they hadn't kind of demonstrated this so I think forums are really helpful um but also it's to do with it's things like training with managers so that they use appropriate language um some people have different kind of approaches personally I would normally historically have said that I was somebody with autism um other a lot of autistic people for autism like um they condition first language or referring themselves as autistic if managers understand that they can pick up on the language that the person uses and reflect that back on them um and that then can just little things like that can make somebody feel included and much more comfortable Absolutely, absolutely. And we spoke um, at the start of the episode about how, about the definition of neurodiversity and how, you know, that can mean so many different things. I just want to briefly um, talk about the definition of vulnerability and uh, the wide scope of vulnerabilities that are out there. Um, And yeah, I wonder if somebody could um, elaborate on that for me um, and on how anyone can be vulnerable at any time. When we think traditionally, and and in the earliest days, I suppose, of thinking about vulnerability, we might have thought about somebody who lacks complete capacity, who um, may struggle to, you know, to understand detailed or more complex information, or somebody who uh, is going through a particularly difficult life uh, period. Um, But I think more generally, when you take the sort of the, the widely accepted FCA view that Vulnerable customers are customers who are more at risk of a poor outcome than a non-vulnerable customer, and that that poor outcome may have more of an impact on them than it would a non-vulnerable customer. Um, You start to go, well, actually, there's lots and lots of different areas where I can say, oh, this type of person or customer or in this situation or somebody with a differently abled brain. Um, therefore, I can see how they'd be at risk of that and how it would be more of an impact for them should it crystallize. And I think once you start thinking with the end in mind, it gives you a much um, a more open mind 
to therefore what a vulnerable customer might mean and what they might look like. And as you say, whether that is a, a permanent um, vulnerability um, or whether that is a, a transitory, uh, a transitory one or, heaven forbid, uh, a mix of both. So somebody with a, a permanent vulnerability going through an additional transitory period of vulnerability. I think something that Louise alluded to there that's really interesting is the idea of intersectionality. Um, when we think about how um, various different vulnerabilities can come together to make an outcome perhaps worse than it would have been otherwise with any one of those. So an example is, um, for example, somebody who is autistic might struggle with change. So therefore, a breakdown in a relationship, which might move, then lead to a house move and a whole load of other things, which would be difficult enough anyway, could be exacerbated because of the autism. Um, and especially when we think about things like, for example, race, which might not be considered a vulnerability, but somebody who has um, a neurodivergence and is of a minority um, ethnicity may get less support in other areas, so therefore need more support um, to be considered by their financial advisor, for example, um, because of the, that, the intersection of those different characteristics. You've been listening to The Advice Show with myself and senior investments reporter Nicola Blackburn. Today, we were joined by consultant Louise Allison from Conexo, principal associate at Evershed Sutherland Holy Short, and Quilter's central investment proposition lead, Katia Oakley-Bell. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. It's been a really fascinating listen. For any questions, please feel free to join us. Uh, I've messed that up completely. Um, sorry, give me a second. For any questions, please feel free to tweet us at New Model Advisor or email us at nmateam at citywire.co.uk. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.